Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Will Oremus. And I'm April Glazer. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, February 6th. On today's show, we'll talk about a new anti-tech lobbying group formed by, of all people, former Facebook and Google employees. We'll also discuss the big trial that's happening this week in San Francisco. Waymo, which was Google's early self-driving car effort, now spun off under its parent company Alphabet, is accusing rival Uber of stealing trade secrets in the winner-take-all race for self-driving supremacy. Later, we'll be joined by Marcy Wheeler, an independent journalist and longtime expert on the ins and outs of FISA. That's the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which has been in the news a ton in recent weeks with regard to a controversial memo, the Nunes Memo. Republicans say it calls into question the legitimacy of the federal investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election. And lastly, don't close my tabs, our picks for the best on the web this week. All right, Will, how's it going this week? It's going well. It's another busy Tuesday in the tech world. While we were recording, actually, I just saw that two SpaceX booster rockets landed in perfect synchrony in what appears to have been a successful launch of the Falcon Heavy rocket. This is a a big deal, I think. Yeah, it's been really exciting to watch the private space industry really come into its own. Uh, You know, SpaceX has certainly launched a ton of rockets in the past 12 months. So, you know, today was was a big day because the Falcon Heavy, uh, you know, they weren't sure how it was going to go, but it seems like it went well. Yeah, we criticize these tech companies a lot and we're not going to stop doing that. But it's also fun to just occasionally (laughs) sit back and watch them do something amazing like this. Um, But you uh, this week have been covering a very different side of the cutting edge of the technology industry. The self-driving car company Waymo, which was originally Google's self-driving car project, it's now spun off as its own division under Alphabet, Waymo is accusing rival Uber of stealing trade secrets in a desperate bid to catch up in the race to build self-driving cars. Obviously, a lot of juicy details always come out in a trial like this. Today, we had former Uber CEO Travis Kalanick on the stand, but Is there something more at stake than just a sort of petty rivalry between the two leaders in this space, April? For sure. You know, it's it's and it's not necessarily a petty rivalry. This is really a question about LIDAR technology. It's about trade secrets. It's about the thin line between acquiring talent and acquiring trade secrets. But really what's at at stake here, at least from from what I can tell, is who is going to be the dominant player in the future of American transportation? You know, assuming that self-driving cars are the future of American transportation. We're seeing a ton of investment in this space, of course, by some of the world's largest companies, um, you know, like like Alphabet. And, you know, if who who wins this case is really going to determine 
you know, who gets to continue building their their self-driving cars. Yeah, it was interesting. I even saw apparently Kalanick basically said as much on the stand today. You know, on the first day, on the first day, Waymo was up there and they basically painted Uber as this company that was willing to do anything to get ahead in this race. Today, Kalanick, the former Uber CEO, said he does think self-driving will be, quote, winner take all. Basically, that there are network effects where whoever takes the lead and has the technology will be able to dominate. That, of course, is what Uber has managed to do with ride-hailing apps. Does Uber have a chance here? I mean, Kalanick even admitted that Google is the leader and that Uber is playing catch-up. It's hard to say if, you know, who's going to come out on top with this case because really what they're going to have to prove or, you know, if, if, if Waymo wins, they're going to have to successfully prove that Uber took their trade secrets, right? Or that rather Anthony Lewandowski, who used to work at Alphabet and then uh, started a self-driving truck company, Auto, uh, and which was acquired by Uber and so went to work at Uber, that that he took with him trade secrets that were then, you know, used uh, by by Uber. And, and that's going to be very difficult uh, to prove. But certainly Waymo is painting a picture that shows Uber as a villainous company or, you know, uh, I'd rather that Kalnick really wanted the IP from Alphabet, and that was part of his motivation for bringing Lewandowski on board. You know, then we have Alphabet saying that they let uh, that they let, you know, Lewandowski go. He no longer works at Uber. This is a lot of palace intrigue that that really boils down to who is going to control the future of the self-driving car industry. So uh, so we'll definitely be watching that. I think my favorite thing so far was that apparently there was a discussion of whether they could include in the trial a link that Kalanick sent to Lewandowski where he had linked the YouTube video right. of Michael Douglas's greed is good speech from the movie Wall Street. That's just like the most uber thing possible. If nothing else, I imagine this trial will solidify in the popular imagination the image of Uber as these sort of greedy, Ayn Rand-loving capitalists uh, willing to win at all costs. And maybe it will solidify for people what the heck Waymo actually is, and we won't have to say anymore that it is formerly Google's self-driving car division, which is now part of Alphabet or whatever else it is we say about Waymo these days. Uh, Will, uh, you have been looking a little bit, as usual, at companies like Facebook and, and Google. And something that, that, that new has kind of popped up uh, with regard to how um, how these companies are reckoning with the aftermath of the 2016 election. Really, you know, since Trump was elected, the big tech companies have been coming to terms with the fact that maybe their world-changing tech hasn't always changed the world for the better. And some ex-employees from those companies are now starting to push back, but in a more formalized way. Can you kind of um, help us understand what these ex-employees are doing now? Right. So there's a new group of tech critics who have come together under one banner. They are forming what they call a union of concerned experts called the Center for Humane Technology. This according to a report from Nellie Bowles in The New York Times earlier this week. It, the group is led by Tristan Harris, who some of you may know as the former in-house design ethicist at Google who has turned into a major critic of the tech platforms. He is the popularizer of the phrase time well spent, which has become a rallying phrase at Facebook where they're trying to get people to maybe spend less time passively browsing their feeds, more time having meaningful interactions with their friends and family. 
Besides Harris, the group also includes a former Facebook operations manager, a former Apple and Google communications executive, the former Facebook executive Dave Morin, and Justin Rosenstein, who created Facebook's like button. Just a, a rather large group of people who had sort of all been individually criticizing these companies and these platforms for their effect on our lives. Right. And now they will speak, I guess, with one voice. And, you know, what's there's there's a lot interesting here. First of all, I'm curious uh what exactly they hope to accomplish by lobbying for policy reforms or policy interventions. It seems like they're they're actually pushing for regulation here. Do, do you know what they they're, they're proposing? Has that been made clear yet? Or is it just clear that they're 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 organizing into some kind of more substantive unit? Well, the report says that their first project is to introduce what they call a ledger of harms. This is, according to the New York Times, a website aimed at guiding rank-and-file engineers who are concerned about what they're being asked to build. The site will include data on the health effects of different technologies and ways to make products that are healthier. I think they are also going to do some lobbying. Um, I think that they are already looking to support the bill from Senator Edward Markey, the Massachusetts Democrat, uh, commissioning research on technology's impact on children's health, and they're supporting a bill out of California by State Senator Bob Hertzberg, which would prohibit digital bots from being used without identification. So these are a couple of specific planks they have so far, but I imagine the real news here to me is just that they've they've formed this group and that there will now exist this locus of anti-tech lobbying and thought. But April, you follow these legislative pushes for reform on various fronts. Do you see a group like this actually having any impact? I mean, certainly, I think that, you know, these people are coming from the industry. And so they really know how to speak the language and can hopefully offer some clarity to legislators or, or, you know, Congress members who have been kind of confused about how to rein in, you know, the ever growing power of big tech companies. I mean, so far, I think most of the uh, interventions in terms of like legislative reforms has been about uh, political ad disclosure. Like we have the, the Warner and the Klobuchar bill, uh, the Honest Ads Act, right, which which would require that uh, political ads, you know, on tech platforms disclose, you know, where who paid for them and, and things like that, kind of the same types of disclosures that are required on television and, and radio ads. But, you know, we might actually see with this group some really creative approaches that would, you know, rein in the power of these companies. One thing, though, that I want to flag is that, uh, you know, the people who are, are are kind of forwarding this this reform effort and that are part of this group made a lot of money from these companies not being regulated. Right. Or, or at least from their boundless growth. And and so it, it's, it's fantastic that they're that they're stepping up to the plate now. It's also worth noting, though, that they certainly benefited from a time when there was not uh, legislative intervention kind of uh, as part of the conversation. Yeah. But, but you're right. I think there is something to be said for the fact that they speak the language of the tech companies. I, I do think that yeah. there's a tendency on the part of higher ups at companies like Facebook and Google to dismiss the criticism that comes from you know snarky tech bloggers in New York. Uh, they can sort of tell themselves, oh, those people don't know what it's really like. They don't know what they're talking about. But when it comes from their former friends and colleagues who were right there beside them when they started the company, that has to, I think that has to resonate a little bit more. And then the question is just, you know, what can they actually accomplish uh, either on the legislative front or on the public opinion front? 
One of the reasons why these companies are so hard to regulate is that we actually don't really have the kind of civic or regulatory scaffolding in place that would address the way these companies look or the shape of these companies, right? They don't necessarily fall under the purview of the FCC or the FTC, and they only fall under the purview of the Federal Elections Commission in a very narrow way. And so one of the challenges here is going to be uh, kind of what the legislation looks like and, and who's responsible for keeping these companies in check and 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 enforcing any rules that do come out of Congress, you know. But of course, getting Congress to do anything is a heavy lift as well. So, uh, so I I actually really look forward to seeing what the uh, what the state bill looks like coming out of California. But uh, it's something we're definitely going to keep uh, watch on. These companies have been under a lot of pressure. They've been in the hot seat, you know, since the election, and uh, and they're definitely scrambling to get it right. And I don't think I'm giving away too much if I tease the fact that we will have at least one of the members of this group on our show very soon. But for now, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll have our interview with Marcy Wheeler, an independent journalist writing about national security and civil liberties. You may know her as Empty Wheel on Twitter. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. Our guest today is Marcy Wheeler. Marcy Wheeler is an independent journalist writing about national security and civil liberties. She writes as Empty Wheel at her blog, EmptyWheel.net. She's published in a ton of places, including Motherboard, The New Republic, HuffPost, Slate, and Al Jazeera. She's been covering the Devin Nunes memo that was released late last week extensively, and that controversy has continued into this week. Welcome to If Then, Marcy. Really good to be here. So FISA is back in the news. You know, just a few weeks ago, Congress actually reauthorized Section 702 of the Federal Intelligence Surveillance Act. You know, now it's really at the center of the GOP memo claiming bias in the FBI's Russia probe, basically saying that a key Trump advisor was unjustly surveilled with the use of a FISA order. And before we get into the nuances of the current debate, Marcy, Can you remind us what exactly FISA does and why it's controversial amongst privacy advocates? In 1978, after the Supreme Court said that the government couldn't wiretap Americans without some kind of legal process, but said maybe foreign intelligence is different, Congress passed a means to spy on Americans or other people domestically using a then new secret court called the the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. Um, And it's a means of getting being able to spy without the target ever knowing the basis for why you got to spy on them, or except in rare cases where 
an American uh, where somebody is um, is tried in the United States. So in 1978, it was just individualized. It was just electronic surveillance. Then they added physical searches, which have become stored communication searches. And then after stellar wind in in the aughts under George Bush, Congress provided a way for the government to go to providers like Google and Yahoo and be able to spy on people around the world, targeting foreigners overseas um, without the same kind of process that you would get under the traditional FISA process. Carter Page was targeted under the, the... old style kind, although he was probably targeted as well under something that was also passed in 2008, which says you need an order to spy on people when they're overseas, Americans when they're overseas. Um, but that that's not the center of the debate. The center of the debate is that uh, in 2016, after he had left the Trump campaign, FBI put together an application saying we think he is uh, willingly working with Russians to spy on the United States. One of the things cited in that application process was what's called the Steele dossier, which started as an opposition research project funded by Hillary and the Democrats. And that got shared with the FBI because certain alarming things were discovered. But it wasn't the only thing. It was in no means the only reason why FBI thought that Carter Page might actually be spying for the Russians. Republicans have made that, and not all Republicans, by the way, but but Devin Nunes and and Paul Ryan and and the president have made that fact, the fact that an opposition research dossier was one of the things that was the basis of this this FISA order in, in 2016. They've made it kind of their case to discredit the entire Mueller investigation, which is frankly nonsense because nothing he's done so far even relies on any of any FISA process, not even the the indictment against Manafort. And there were reports he he also was targeted under FISA. So it's sort of a shiny object to try and discredit the investigation into Trump, but it has refocused attention on how the FISA court works. Right. And so, you know, the FISA, Paul Ryan was actually um, advocating for the reauthorization of the FISA Amendments Act just weeks before they started to instrumentalize, uh, you know, FISA as being, you know, misused in the Carter Page case. Can you kind of help us to kind of understand the hypocrisy here or if there is a hypocrisy? (laughs) There is very much hypocrisy. So what got reauthorized literally two weeks before this memo came out is it's called Title VII. And it basically means there are ways to access Americans' communications without a warrant at all, whether it's the backdoor search or the Tor. I believe they also use this with VPNs, the Tor VPN exception, a way to access Americans' communications with no warrant. Now, when Nunes and Ryan were wailing about poor uh, Carter Page, who said he was an agent of the Kremlin as far back as 2013, they were saying, oh, my gosh, one piece of evidence out of a slew of evidence uh, came from Democrats. This is a, this is the worst thing since Watergate. They had just passed, they had just reauthorized 702 without any, I mean, basic reforms. People like Ron Wyden, Justin Amash, Zoe Lofgren were all pushing to add a warrant requirement before you could access Americans' communications. And they were like, no, 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 we need to balance security and privacy and 
the Americans who are most likely to get sucked up under 702, which would be, you know, Americans who have family that live in Muslim areas or in China, um, they don't get the same concerns that George that uh, that Carter Page gets. Okay, so so the issue here, the the potential hypocrisy is not necessarily that Section 702, which the Republicans under Nunes had reauthorized a few weeks ago, was directly involved in the the memo about bias in the Page investigation. But if I'm if I'm correct here, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, the the hypocrisy is basically that civil libertarians and privacy advocates wanted to have this debate about the potential ways that this FISA system could be abused when the reauthorizations came up. Nunes and the Republicans did not want to have that debate. They reauthorized it with little debate. And now here they are a couple weeks later turning around and saying, actually, this process really is corrupt because it caught up a guy who was related to Trump. And we think that there should have been more checks and balances or that there was abuse here or that the reasons for wiretapping Carter Page weren't fully uh, weren't fully vetted or investigated. Is that right? Yeah. And again, the standard of accessing Carter Page's communications was way higher than the people who would incidentally get picked up under 702. So it's basically saying the standard for this white Republican Christian who has ties to Trump are going to be way higher than they're going to be for Muslims or for Chinese Americans or what have you. And, and there's no basis for that. I mean, you know, if we're going to fix it, let's fix it for the people whose communications are being accessed without any evidence of wrongdoing, because there was actually plenty of evidence of at least interest in making arrangements, interest in, in working with the Russians in suspicious ways with Page. Okay, so there was an op-ed I saw recently from Asha Rangappa, uh, who was trying to make the case that liberals and privacy advocates actually have themselves partly to blame for what's happening now with this GOP memo. She said they have paved the way for this undermining of public trust in the FISA court process um, with all their advocacy saying that this is just a rubber stamp court. She was arguing that's really not the case and people should have faith in the process. But now the GOP is piggybacking on that and saying, oh, yeah, this this process really is too easy. Where does that leave uh, privacy advocates and civil libertarians? And is that even a fair is that a fair criticism? I wrote a piece on it. It was so she she had no idea what she was talking about. She had zero idea what she was talking about. To make that claim, she first of all ignored that there are plenty of Republicans. I mean, I just named two, right? I I, I named well, I named uh, Justin Amash, named Rand Paul, named Mike Lee. There are plenty of Republicans who would like to rein in the worst, the most dangerous kinds of surveillance. So it's not just the progressive left that are doing whatever she seems to think is really evil. But she suggested certain things she would have liked the progressive left to do, such as demanding more transparency at FBI, trying to fix what she calls loopholes that give the government too much power at the FISA court. Those are things that progressives and libertarians have been fighting for for a, for a decade. And in fact, the progressives and libertarians have won in small part, not, not the FBI reporting, because FBI kind of immunizes itself from anything on this. She knows nothing about uh, added oversight in the FISA process. And that's the kind of thing that the progressive left and the libertarian right have been working together with in really good faith for, as I said, over a decade. Now, FISA has been used for years by the federal government, as you've said, to issue broad orders uh, to American tech companies like Facebook, Google, Microsoft and ISPs to hand over user data to the U.S. government. 
Can you talk a little bit now? I, I think, you know, this is a, a moment where we can kind of understand the relationship between tech companies and, you know, the FISA court or these types of orders that get issued. You know, this came up, of course, uh, after Snowden uh, disclosed the prison program and other programs. The, the federal government can essentially issue uh, broad orders for tech companies to to just hand over user data. And this is without a warrant, right? The FISA court oversees all aspects of the process against Americans domestically. And they do, as far as we know, a fairly rigorous job of, of making sure the government doesn't get information they shouldn't, making sure that the technical assistance right. is sound. Under 702, the technical assistance is not overseen by the court. So Wyden has raised the concern, and it's and it's a real one, that... Um, the government could go to Apple and say, we want, we want you to backdoor your encryption. We want you to be able to backdoor massive amounts of people carrying iPhones overseas. And it's unclear where that would, you know, where that debate would happen in court. We should assume that certain companies bend over backwards to cooperate with the federal government. For example, Microsoft. One of the things the Snowden documents showed was that Microsoft had given the government, when it purchased Skype, it had given the government advanced warning about how it was kind of hardening Skype. Microsoft is very cooperative. Assume Apple is less cooperative, although who knows now. Um, it's not clear that Twitter has ever been made into a regular prison provider just because so much of what Twitter does is accessible via other means. Twitter, we should assume, mm -hmm. is generally more rigorous about challenging content, although, of course, Twitter will get rid of Twitter's now getting rid of accounts at the drop of a hat. So uh, Twitter, Twitter has probably changed its relationship with the federal government. And, th and that's the point, I think, is that you've got these um, you've got these programmatic requests and these negotiations are happening in secret. And most of these providers are going to be fairly happy to be very accommodated to the to the government on the notion that that what they're really providing as long as the government can can ensure secrecy on the notion that the government that that they are helping America protect itself against terrorists and spies and weapons proliferators. Um, and those are the three main uses for this, although both the spies aspect and the weapons proliferators uh, can be actually quite broad. And so finally, I'm curious, what is the likelihood that Americans are actually being surveilled under FISA, that, that anyone listening to this is being surveilled? I mean, I'm sure it's very hard to know because these are secret orders generally. And I, also, I'm curious, you know, it seems like it's a problem that non-U.S. persons are surveilled, too. Um, you know, any any final thoughts on on that? Sure. Um, there are roughly 300, 350 individual Americans targeted or there were in 2016. So not that many Americans are targeted through these individualized orders. Pretty small number, which is why 702 is the big concern. Um, we should, one of the areas where we know the government is collecting is they're targeting Chinese scientists with the argument that Chinese scientists are trying to steal American intellectual property. But that means any scientist here in the United States, whether Chinese American or not, that is having engaging in normal scientific conversation with somebody in Beijing or Shanghai um, is going to be collected. And there, there are cases where we believe they got 
uh, improperly prosecuted because the FBI didn't understand the technology that they that they were looking at. So that's that's that that's where the concern really lies. But in addition, the government is allowed to keep anything that the attorney general deems related to national security. And it is unreviewable. So that means we've just uh, codified Jeff Sessions' ability to say, I'm going to collect data, completely domestic data, domestic communications using Tor of people that I deem to be a threat to national security. Jeff Sessions can in secret say, I think BLM is a threat to the country. And that's unreviewable according to the, according to the law that Devin Nunes and, and um, Paul Ryan just Champion. Right. BLM, BLM being Black Lives Matter. And I, and I have one final question for you, Marcy, which is now that this debate has been reopened and now that we have Republicans and in particular Trump supporters questioning the FISA courts and worrying about abuses and bias in prosecutions, does that leave an opening for reform or is this really not going to change anything in terms of the, the politics of this? I think it leaves an opening for legal challenges. Uh, New York Times has already asked to see Carter Page's application. There's a defendant in California who had a pretty suspicious individualized FISA order. He's, his wife is Chinese and he was a Boeing engineer. Uh, he's got a case pending at the Ninth Circuit. And they may look at his case differently now that the president has said there is a public interest in making FISA application uh, reviewable. And if and when we learn more about, uh, again, that defendant, his name is Keith Gartenlaub, if when when we learn more about practices that should be questioned, like the use of, of contractors uh, who may have um, financial incentives to drum up as many targets as possible, then I think, well, it's got to be a feedback loop. And, you know, in the history of FISA, frankly, the courts have been more successful than Congress, although I think we will have more of a feedback loop in part because uh, the left-right coalition that Asha Rangappa believes doesn't exist is more institutionalized than it was a decade ago. And, and we are all having these continuous conversations about how we can it, how we can use these political moments to improve this surveillance program. Well, then this conversation might not be over, uh, but we're going to end it here. Marcy, thanks so much for coming on the show. Great to be on. Thanks. All right. One more quick break and then don't close my tabs. Some of our favorite things we've seen online this week. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time again for Don't Close My Tabs. April, what tab could you not close this week? So the story that uh, that I keep thinking about this week was called Making a Crypto Utopia in Puerto Rico. It was a New York Times story. And it's about how uh, after Hurricane Maria, 
uh, a number of Bitcoin enthusiasts have um, went down, have gone down to Puerto Rico to try to kind of start a new city or kind of Bitcoin colony uh, in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria. And they're calling it, uh, port- they're calling themselves Portotopians. And they're trying to create kind of like a crypto utopia. Um, and the, the appeal is not only that, you know, Hurricane Maria has left Puerto Rico completely devastated and in and, and a need to to rebuild. Uh, and so they're trying to capitalize on that in a way. But also that uh, Puerto Rico uh, is kind of a tax haven um, and, uh, and, and doesn't have income tax there. And so they're trying to avoid taxes and also move to uh, move to a place that they think they can kind of start a new city over. And it's a uh, it's a very interesting story because it kind of shows the religiosity of this movement, of the Bitcoin movement. I mean, these people are really adherents to uh, to this kind of financial philosophy of of, you know, having money outside of a federal system. Um, it, it It's it's really kind of a striking and 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 somewhat um, spooky story. And I think it leaves a lot of questions open as to like what it's going, you know, how how people are going to take advantage of um, how in ruin Puerto Rico is, which is actually, you know, I'd, I'd like to see more aid going to Puerto Rico and and less, you know, rich people trying to start new colonies there with Bitcoin. So um, really a, a disturbing story, at least from my perspective. Yeah. I mean, as I read this story, there were a couple of quotes from the people who are forming this colony that just gave me chills, not in a good way. Um, you had the founder of the news site CNET, uh, who's moving his new blockchain company to Puerto Rico saying- Right, and they're coming from the U.S. <laughs> from from the U.S. Uh, well, he said he's moving it from the Cayman Islands to Puerto Rico to be part of this, okay, you know, okay. this utopia. He said, what's happened here is a perfect storm. I mean, how, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, I don't want to like always be the one, you know, making it seem like the tech industry is evil or out of touch, but but Jesus, how out of touch do you have to be to say that something was the perfect storm that killed all these people and devastated this island, but it's perfect for you because now you get to swoop in and have your unregulated Bitcoin utopia? Yeah. Uh, another character, Brock Pierce, who's the uh, president of the Bitcoin Foundation, is down there as well. He was a character in this story. He's really the one that um, I think is kind of at the helm of the religious sentiment that I that I touched on of the movement. Um, you know, one thing I want to read from the story, he says, Mr. Pierce walked around the tree, which is um, this kind of tree that's known as the tree of life. It's a historic tree in Puerto Rico and said prayers for a Portotopia holding a rusted wrench that he had picked up in the territory. He kissed an old man's feet. He blessed a crystal in the water as they all watched. He played the chaplain's speech to everyone and to the tree. He's referring to a uh, Charlie Chaplin speech called The Great Dictator, where Chaplin parodies Hitler, uh, right? And he finds aspiration uh, in the lines from the speech. Um, And this has come up a few times in the story. Uh, I mean, these people um, seem like they are really kind of on their own quest here. And they really are developing their own mythology that... um, Kind of seems to have some questionable foundations uh, to justify their what appears to be kind of a, a crypto fueled colonization of an island that is in ruins. One more quote, if I could. Yeah. From the co-founder of Lottery.com, quote, we're benevolent capitalists building a benevolent economy. 
end quote. I just read that and thought, yeah, when has that ever gone wrong before? Right. And, and you know, there's uh, some disagreement uh, across Puerto Rico about whether or not, you know, to welcome these guys or not. You know, some people uh, seem to think that are quoting the story that, you know, this could bring uh, folks to town who will inevitably spend money at the restaurants and the businesses and help to revive the economy. You know, others uh, are lamenting that this is just an iteration of using Puerto Rico as a tax, quote, tax playground for the rich, but definitely an important story and uh, and something to to keep watch on, on how people are thinking of taking advantage of, of this really uh, horrible time in American history. Uh, Will, what, what tab um, could you not close this week? Well, one of these days, I promise I will bring a happy tab to this discussion. This is not that tab. Uh, this is a story also from the New York Times. We're very Times heavy today. Uh, the headline, A Driver's Suicide Reveals the Dark Side of the Gig Economy. This is a story about a livery driver in his early 60s from New York. He's been doing this for decades. Uh, you know, the kind of driver who puts on his suit every morning and, you know, considers himself a professional, um, you know, has a lot of standards about the way that he works. And he killed himself with a shotgun in front of City Hall in lower Manhattan. This after writing a Facebook post laying out his case that his profession had been uh, made hopeless by the advent of the ride-hailing economy. So Uber and Lyft and all these different options where people can get around today at the touch of a button have made his job, I won't say obsolete, but they've made it uh, certainly unremunerative, and he was having a hard time making ends meet. The Times portrays this as a as almost like an inevitable fallout of the shift from taxis and livery cabs to Uber and Lyft. I, I felt that was a little unfair. I mean, when someone commits suicide, the scientific consensus is that there's never just one cause. It probably wasn't quite so simple, uh, and it, it's probably a little unfair to blame Uber or Lyft for this tragic death. Um, at the same time, it certainly highlighted the plight of the people whose business is being disrupted by the super convenient ride hailing apps. Right. You know, uh, it says in the article he lost his health insurance. He, you know, accrued a lot of debt. Um, it certainly seems that a lot of pressures had come into his life as a result of the economic strain that his industry has seen you know, from uh, from competing with these right hailing apps and, you know, economic strain is is a serious thing. You know, that's your livelihood. And uh, and it's it was just a, a story that really brings into to question or not into question, but rather into stark relief that that these questions about, you know, who's going to take over ride hailing and, and how is the transportation industry going to change? We're talking about people's lives here and their livelihood here, you know, and and when we talk about disrupting an industry, we're talking about also disrupting how people make their money and support their families and and are able to like achieve their hopes and dreams and, and all of these things. And it's not an inconsequential argument. And um, this was just a very, very sad uh sad event that occurred, a, a very sad story. And um, and it, it really uh, forces us to keep the human question of all of these like economic uh, battles and, and, you know, that, that we talk about on this show and, and, and in the news all the time uh, in, in mind that, that, that these are people that we're talking about here. 
Yeah. Uh, one more thing I wanted to highlight here. I mean, I actually saw it as a good thing when Uber and Lyft and these ride-hailing companies came along and basically broke through what had been a form of regulatory capture by the taxi industry, where you had to have these government-issued medallions in order to drive. You had to save up a ton of money to buy these medallions. They were a big investment. And it's because nobody else was allowed to drive. And that's what made these things so valuable. So the opening of the marketplace for driving you know, I think by and large has had great effects for consumers. Certainly, it has opened opportunities for for other drivers, for drivers who are willing and able to adapt to the new marketplace. But you know, even if you even if you think that the regulatory capture was was not a good thing, or that you think that that cartels are bad in principle, there are still this is a reminder. I mean, there are still people behind them whose whose lives and families depend on them, and it might do us well to think a little bit more about those people when we celebrate uh, this kind of disruption. This is a really powerful story, and it's really important that we make the room to talk about uh, stories like this and not just about how these companies are tied up in an intellectual property battle in court. Um, so uh, so glad we got to talk about it, even though it is so difficult to talk about. Um, that is our show for the week. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can also email us at ifthen at slate.com. Thanks again to our guest, Marcy Wheeler, for joining us. You can find her on Twitter at Empty Wheel. And if you like this show, please help us spread the word. We'd really appreciate it if you could take the three minutes to leave a comment or review on iTunes or wherever you listen. Thanks. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Thanks to Don Aulis at A Room with a VU in Santa Barbara. Thanks to Daniel Schrader at Slate in Brooklyn for help today. We'll see you next week.